Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I followed my father's journey down. Um, I met a lot of criminals, corrupt businessmen, corrupt lawyers, dodgy cops. Um, mm. And I mean, these people, they, you know, they have an allure um, and some of them are, are quite charismatic. Mm. And I, I, I'm intrigued by those kind of, I suppose, kind of levels of corruption. And I'm, I'm about charisma. You know, you run into people who can be entirely without morals, and, but they can, they can switch that on and switch it off. They can be quite sort of normal in company, but then when they're, being, when they're at business, then it becomes just a matter of business and entirely immoral. So all those things, I mean, and all the, if you like the textures, the moral textures surrounding all those people, that, 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 I'm, I'm drawn to that. Are all crimes solvable? And is justice always seen to be served? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to enter the dark, sleazy, dirty, bloody world of crime fiction and celebrate two writers who master the genre. One an Irishman, the other an Englishwoman. Journalist, writer and theatre critic Mark Campbell celebrates the 125th anniversary of Agatha Christie's birth and the pleasures of reading a quintessentially British whodunit. And is it possible to find the truth in fiction? Owen McNamee talks Blues a Night, the third and final book in his gripping and wonderfully intense Blue Triology. This is a show about good and evil, paranoia and trickery, some transgressive behaviour and the beguiling power of mystery. At least half the mystery novels published violate the law that the solution, once revealed, must seem to be inevitable. The provocative words of legendary British-American novelist and screenwriter Raymond Chandler. Since her debut in 1920 with The Mysterious Affairs of Styles, Agatha Christie has become the chief proponent of the English village murder mystery. Now, in her lifetime, this hard-working and passionate writer produced 78 books, 157 short stories, not to mention several radio and television plays. Not bad for a novelist who was accused of writing elaborate crossword puzzles. But does the murder of Roger Ackroyd deserve its status as one of the classics of British crime fiction? And does the Queen of Crime hold up against Scandic Noir? Well, journalist, writer and theatre critic Mark Campbell has just published the pocket essential Agatha Christie, 125th anniversary edition. Basically, everything you ever wanted to know about Christie's stories. And I have to say, in impressive detail. I asked Mark, is it fair to apply Raymond Chandler's cutting words to the great Agatha Christie? I can think of one or two books where it doesn't. But generally, when you read them, and when you read them on block, if you like, on mass, you realise that there's very little she ever puts in that's incidental. So if you're prepared to actually uh, pick up on everything, so there's a, if, if a fly buzzes somebody in the face and they swat it, there's a, there's a meaning to that, and that will come out in the solution. So if you're prepared to sort of accept that everything she writes is, if you like, evenly balanced, there is nothing is more important or less important than anything else, then when it comes to the solution, you can actually look back and say, OK, yes, fair enough, she did give us the clues. They were there. She didn't just pluck them out. On the other hand, 
even when you read the books and you think, well, I think this must have some bearing on something, you never quite know what it has until you get the solution. I wouldn't say they're inevitable because there's because they're who done it. So in in a sense, she makes it very clever, and that anybody could do it. The solution, once you get it, you do think well, it's it's a fair solution, but not necessarily inevitable, if that makes sense. Now, the Queen of Crime has been accused of writing elaborate crossword puzzles, but not literature. Do you think that's fair? I think that it's not entirely fair because, as I say, she's she puts the clues out there. In a way, it's a little bit formulaic, perhaps. The characters have to be in a certain place at a certain time to see a certain thing that gives them a certain impression of whatever. But on the other hand, her grasp of characterization, I think especially dialogue, is very strong. And when you read the dialogue, she's very good at like overheard conversations. This is how people actually talk, snatches of conversation, sing odd phrases, half sentences. She's actually much less contrived in her characterization than she's often given credit for, although in terms of perhaps plotting, the plotting is perhaps a little bit rigorous or over-rigorous, if you like. Well, she certainly had a very inquisitive mind. And when going through some of her top books, how she evokes that feeling of paranoia, the claustrophobia, mm. the fear, the vulnerability, all that stuff. Um, she really gets it, doesn't she? Oh, yeah. Um, some of her best novels, I mean, they are very, they're sort of hard to pin down exactly why, but they're very dark, they're very claustrophobic. She's, because she's considered an easy read, that doesn't mean to say that there isn't a lot in there. And, She's very good at self-editing all the adjectives or whatever. They all work and they're all done for a reason. And unless you get to her later books, which are tend to be a little bit padded out, the earlier ones, that there is a, you know, a reason why she writes like she does, and that's to create an atmosphere. And some of her best books do create a very, almost a doom-laden atmosphere, if you like. And so when she does put the odd humorous touch in it, um, it's, it, sort of, it makes you sit up a bit because the novel can be very dark which is, I think, one of her strengths. Yeah, but do you not think we get a terrible amount of middle-class morality? There's huge conservatism in her books. When you think that she was started writing in the 1920s and wrote very much, I think, up until the very early 70s, England was changing and so was Europe and further field. Gender roles were changing. The social landscape was changing. So she doesn't really reflect that in her books. And that would be possibly the main issue I have with her writing. I think you could apply that to a lot of writers, especially uh, genre writers, that they are essentially writing about what they know and about their appealing to a particular audience that they that they know. And they're writing in a very, in a certain time and space that they know. So Agatha Christie, yes, she does appeal to a very middle-class audience, middle-class morality, but on the other hand, obviously, all her novels are based on immorality, if you like, murders and vice and et cetera, et cetera, that she, she, that she loves writing about immorality. But I think, I think in terms of datedness, I think, yes, she wrote you know, in the 20s and 30s, she never particularly changed her viewpoint. So her novels became increasingly dated through, you know, the 50s, 60s. And I think, you know, perhaps there is a case to be said that she never really particularly grew up with with her audience. But on the other hand, conversely, that's why people love her now, because of the very nostalgic feel that you get when you read a Christie. Do you think Agatha Christie had a better understanding or certainly a better grasp of human psychology and vulnerability than possibly Arthur Conan Doyle or had uh, how she developed her characters 
Because if I look at the writing of Arthur Conan Doyle, it's very mm. logical. It's very it's very mm. detailed, like Christy. They're both very good on detail. But yeah. it's it's a different type of mind. It's a very different type of mind. Yeah, I think, I mean, obviously, you know, Conan Doyle was writing m- many years before Agatha Christie started. So in, in the sense that he was still writing, sort of his, the writing style is quite dated. More so, it's very logical. It's it's rather yeah precise. And in almost, you know, Sherlock Holmes is almost the sort of the Jeeves, if you like, to Watson's Bertie Wooster. He's the very, he always has the solution, he always has the answer. He's very methodical, uh, precise, logical. Uh, and I think there is a, quite a sort of, very much a datedness to the morality of those stories. Conan Doyle had a very interesting life, uh, various uh, two marriages, affairs, etc. And he, he had a, an interesting background, but then so did Agatha Christie. Married twice. Obviously, the time when she disappeared was because of some sort of breakup in her first marriage. I think Christie understood about human nature. Perhaps she didn't live in quite such a glass tower as Conan Doyle. And certainly the way her stories are presented, she, she gets under the skin of the characters. A lot of the Conan Doyle stories, the solutions are really rather, well, rather highbrow, rather sort of unreflective of human nature. But Christie knows what motivates people, and often those motivations are quite low, low-based, but she, she brings them out very well in the books. And I mean, you know, Poirot, Miss Marple are, are not without their, their flaws, and they're, they're interesting characters in themselves, possibly, arguably, slightly more interesting than Sherlock Holmes. That's an argument for another time, perhaps. Yeah, but I certainly, what I've read through the lines on Sherlock Holmes, he's hyper-rational. Whereas, yeah. if we look at Hercule Poirot, he understands the mysteries in life. There's so much more depth to him. He's a much more philosophical character, a much more spiritual character. And as such, when you read him, he's... Just way more alive, really. Yeah, I agree. Uh, Poirot is more of a philosopher. Uh, Sherlock Holmes is more of a computer, if you like. So, uh, you know, in terms of possibly finding the who would you who would you rather go to? Well, possibly you might want to go to Sherlock Holmes if you wanted to solve a, a particular murder. On the other hand, he wouldn't give you any sort of he wouldn't make you feel good about yourself or be interesting, perhaps to talk to. He would always be looking down on you. Whereas Poirot is much. He's a, he's a more friendly, charismatic figure, I think. Mark, have you read the work of Andrew Norman? He wrote a very interesting book called The Finished Portrait. He looked at Christie's disappearance, I think it was in 1926 or so. Mm. She was married mm. to Archie, her mum had died. And yeah. um, she had a sort of breakdown and yeah. she disappeared into a hotel for 10 days or into this sort yeah. of spa. And he describes it as a psychogenic amnesia. And it's a very yeah. interesting take on her life. Because if you look at some of her later writings, there's an argument to say that her mind was not as strong. And I'm just wondering, you have spent hours slaving away putting together this pocket essential guide to Christie's yeah. writing. So I'm wondering, do you have an opinion on that? I don't know. So, I mean, my opinion would be very much perhaps what this author was saying, that there is this sort of state known as disassociative fugue, where what, what, what's interesting is what she did was she assumed the surname of the woman that her husband had been having an affair with. So it's almost like she became this person who was essentially her joint friend of theirs, but had come between them. So she went off, disappeared, ended up in Harrogate and assumed another personality, which is sort of like a fugue state. It's sort of self-denial and it's a kind of fl- fight or flight. And she, she flew 
And she, she was obviously very stressful. And she, you know, as anybody would be when your husband comes in and says you're having an affair with a joint friend. And, you know, she, she left, she just fled. She was in almost in, like in somebody else's mind. So she was very rational about what she did because, you know, she, she could have killed herself. She could have disappeared and nobody would have ever found her. But the fact that she sort of went off to Harrogate, stayed in this hotel, signed in as this person, um, didn't really particularly do anything to evade capture, just waited there until till she was noticed almost. I think it probably made her novels afterwards more interesting, more rounded, because she she perhaps was able to tap in on this sort of strange state of mind. I don't think anybody will ever know because she was obviously very she didn't really talk about it afterwards. And she never she never explained what happened and I personally don't think she entirely knew what happened. Yeah, unlike it, her it, books, there was no big reveal. But it's it it so, explains her understanding on human behaviour because she ultimately yeah. realised how vulnerable she was, whether it was yeah. in her marriage or in her creative her creative capacities, because yeah. she'd quite a breakdown and found it quite difficult to write for a while afterwards. So yeah. she really tapped into that in her writing, didn't she? All those twists yeah. in life. Yeah, and also in a sense that perhaps what makes her different to Conan Doyle is that Conan Doyle's mysteries are sometimes not necessarily anything to do with human relationships, if you like, uh, whereas really all of Christie's books are to do with human relationships, relationships usually involving between men and women, involving love and spurned love and et cetera, and regrets and all that stuff. So, so it's, and that, that became stronger, if you like, after what happened to her, because she could see that she's very good at seeing sort of different points of view as well. You know, Conan Doyle's stories, the Sherlock Holmes stories, are almost more glorified crossword puzzles because they're often about things that are nothing to do with people or how people would behave. They're to do with things, to do with plans, you know, to do with conspiracies that don't quite work. So it's unusual in a, in a, in a Sherlock Holmes story to have a story that's, that's spun around something emotional or to do with, you know, love or humanity. Yeah. Whereas Christie's books tend to, that, that's, te- that's what they tend to be revolved around and and she has this impression of being you know very sort of dry but in fact there's a lot of humanity in her books Yeah it's interesting though Hercule Poirot he came he first appeared I think was in The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Yeah Some of his throwaway comments on women and on the emotional frame in general are very revealing and in one way it struck me that maybe that what Hercule Poirot is saying are commenting on life and his philosophies are very much very much the mind of uh, Christie. In, in one of them, he says something like, women are never kind, they can sometimes be tender. And mm. he's very reluctant around women, although he's warm, he's bombastic. Um, mm. He's incredibly peculiar type of a guy, but very lovable all the same. Yeah, I think you have to be careful about putting the words of a character into the mouth of the author. But on the other hand, when you have an author like Christie who's written so many books, then that, that does that sort of a pattern does appear, and you can perhaps say, well, this is perhaps what the author thinks. I think probably after what happened to Christie, perhaps she never really fully trusted, I don't know about women, but perhaps generally people, because I think that's what happens after a, some, a situation like that. One, one naturally is perhaps a bit less trusting, a bit less, a bit more, less naive, if you like, in dealing with people, and this came across in Poirot's character. But she had a very good relationship with her second husband, who was several years her junior, yes. Max Malouin, yes. and yes. she travelled all over the world with him. Like, he was an archaeologist, she spent several, several months, uh, over a couple of years, in Syria, and that, yep. that 
that gave her um, an interesting perspective to write about in her novels. Now, can I ask you something? My favourite Christie book would be And Then There Were None. It doesn't right. have Hercule Poirot in it. <laughs> um, no. What would be your own particular favourite? I think probably my own particular favourite would be The Murder of Roger Ackroyd. So I don't really want to say why, because it's the sort of book you have to read and then you know why. I mean, I read in a in theatre uh, in a programme, I think it might have been for, and, and then there were none, the, the play. Is it the um, plot? That, well, they actually revealed the plot. They actually revealed the uh, the spoiler, you know, who did it. And I mean, what I do by in my pocket central is, don't worry about, I will never reveal any spoilers because, well, that would be, that just wouldn't be the, the, the done thing, would it? Um, but I think what makes um, The Murder of Roger Atkrod is, is just the, the denouement. It's, it's just brilliant. But it's the sort of thing you can do once. And then there were none is probably the, yeah, it's the, it's very, very cleverly written. It's a very, very solid story. Very good group of characters. Is, I'm just wondering, is there an argument to say the ABC Murders has a tighter plot? Possibly. I think I think, and then there were none has a has a more grip has a more atmospheric plot. I mean, it's you know the the hotel on the island cut off from everyone. All these people brought brought there uh, for reasons that gradually become clear. It's, it's there's a touch of in, Inspector Calls about it. This group of people who sort of realise that they're sort of linked up together in, in a way that they hadn't realised before. And I think it's it's. It's a classy, no, it's a classy story. You know, if you see the play version, the play version actually ends, I think, differently to the novel. Uh, she chose to end it slightly differently. What she's very good at doing is setting things in a very sort of isolated environment. Uh, you know, one case an island, another case a sort of a snowbound house, and so nobody can escape. So, when we look at her more exotic novels, let's say Murder on the Orient Express or Death on the Nile, is it because of the location and the sense of the exotic that these books are revered? Or do you think it's the plot and the characterisation? I would say when you when people think of Agatha Christie, you know, as you say, they think of Murder on the Orient Express. And then you might say, well, what do you think of it? And they go, well, I haven't read it. I think it, sometimes it's they know of it, of it. And they might have seen it, but when it comes to reading, I think it's possibly they, they might say, mm. and I think when it comes to plot, they probably won't remember the plot. I think it's probably the locations a lot of the time, or perhaps a certain detail of the plot. I mean, Murder on the Orient Express is such, a, is such an exotic location, if you like. And again, the, 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 the solution to that is something that you could probably only do once. I think she's just brilliant at locations, um, choosing a location it's either very exotic or it's isolated or you've got the typical country house locked room murder story. She's, that's what she's great at. And, and um, she's probably slightly dated at the time in, in a way, but that's what makes her good now is this, as I say, sort of nostalgic feel-good factor of quintessentially British or English, I think. Even when she sets them in the Nile, they, they become almost more quintessentially British. Now, the Pocket Essential Guide, you sweep through all, basically, Christie's books. And as you go through the 1950s, you get a little bit, well, best described mm. as critical, maybe. <laughs> you, no, desc- critical, well, but... <laughs> you describe Cat Amongst the Pigeons yeah. as signs that her, her cherished magic formula was wearing mm. a bit thin. And then you get on to her 1972 book, when I think it was her last, wasn't it? Elephants Can Remember, yeah, as sheer yeah. tedium. That yeah. was rough now, come on. Well, it was rough. I mean, but I don't think I'm alone in saying that. And I think, to be honest, somebody who writes, as she does, you know, over 100 books, sort of mixtures of novels and short stories, she's not going to get everything. And, and, and essentially, 
if you're writing and producing, I mean, during the war years, she was sort of producing sort of, I don't know, two or three books a year, perhaps more actually, but certainly more stories because she used to write lots of short stories. She was prolific. Um, and even the best writers, when they're very prolific, uh, aren't going to produce the quality all the time. And, you know, she was getting old. Uh, perhaps she'd done the same thing again and again. It was very hard to think of new ideas. So, yeah, I was critical, but just because I criticised some of the, the later ones uh, doesn't mean to say she was, wasn't absolutely brilliant in some of the earlier ones. But there's an argument there, or certainly there's a, a field of understanding to say that she was suffering from Alzheimer's at the end and that her daughter, Rosalind, and certainly her grandson, Matthew Pritchard, were very much protecting her and that a lot of information didn't come out about her sense of well-being. So that maybe she was possibly, not writing uh, under her full capabilities. Well, no, possibly not. Possibly it was Alzheimer's. Possibly it was just simply the fact that she was getting old and wasn't so good at formulating plots and character. I mean, you know, it's sort of, it's not rocket science to think that, you know. I mean, an author can't keep churning books out of the same quality. It's like an actor will have trouble learning his lines. The best the best actor will have trouble. I mean, I've seen an actor, fresh actor on stage getting prompts um, because he's simply getting too old to actually learn the lines. It doesn't mean to say that when he was younger, he didn't do fantastic work. So I think it's just it's an age thing, whether it's Alzheimer's, I don't know. Last question. Scandic detective fiction, whether it's Joe Nesbo, Steve Larson, Henning Mankell, mm. like Kurt Wallander is a fascinating detective. Do you think we'd be celebrating the 250th birth of Agatha Christie? We're celebrating our 125th. Do yeah. you think she will have that enduring appeal or will we be looking more to the what's coming out from Scandinavia and the likes? Oh, no, we'll be celebrating Agatha Christie. Yeah, yeah. In, uh, you know, sounds facetious, but in a, th- in a thousand years, I'm, sh- I'm sure. Um, I mean, I'm a big Doctor Who fan and Agatha Christie featured in one of the sort of Doctor Who stories where, where the Doctor met her and, you know, she, her appeal supposedly is still there in the year two billion or whatever. I mean, her sales are still astronomical. I think in perhaps five, ten, fifteen years' time, you'll have another actor being Poirot and starting again on, on Poirot. I think her appeal is still, is, will still be there, absolutely. Others might come and go, but she'll still be there.
And that was journalist and writer Mark Campbell. The Pocket Essential Agatha Christie 125th edition is published by Old Castle Books and retails for just under a tenner. Mark has also produced Pocket Essentials on Doctor Who, Sherlock Holmes and the Carry On films and is one of the main contributors on the two-volume British crime writing and encyclopedia. Okay, coming up next, provincial gothic meets classic noir with the county down-born, Sligo-based Owen McNamee. Talking books on Newsalk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's great to have your company this evening. Unputdownable, I think best describes Blue as the Night, Owen McNamee's third and final book in his wonderfully atmospheric Blue Triology, which this summer picked up the Kerry Group Irish Novel of the Year Award at the Listowel Writers' Festival. Owen's latest book explores the dark and shady world of the criminal justice system and I have to say is a hugely thrilling, if not slightly disturbing, meditation on the rule of law. Blue as a Night centres on the mysterious Judge Lance Curran, whose tricks in and out of the courtroom make for compelling reading, not to mention all his fixers and henchmen. Well, let's get stuck in with a reading from Owen and Blue as a Night. Hello, my name is Owen McNamee. I'm reading from my latest novel, Blue as a Night, uh, and the setting is Belfast in 1949. Taylor was still talking when Ferguson put the phone down. He had never considered Taylor as a suspect in Patricia's murder. He had never thought that Taylor, or another man unknown to him, some enemy of Kern, had hidden in the trees to wait for Patricia. Now, it seemed as likely as any other conclusion. Taylor, Doris, Cutbush, Lancelot Kern, they had gathered about Patricia, they had made a fellowship of themselves. He thought that if one of them had not taken her life, then another would have stepped forward. He opened the telephone box door onto the pavement. To his left, the driveway led through the woods where Patricia had been found, to the house now shuttered and unseen, the glen, the judge's house. The phone would ring again. His life had been made of such appointments. Men who bade him come to them, that they might show how they had mastered the world when the truth was that they had always attended on his will, the rich and the beggared, the guilty and innocent, those who have been bought, those who have been sold. He looked down at the drawing, the nude woman crouched, alert, ready for flight. Some days after Taylor had been released, Ferguson had seen Patricia on University Road with a group of school friends. In their uniforms of pleated skirts and seamed stockings, they seemed aloof and knowing. In the evenings when they had gone home to Malone and Hollywood, the silken burrows, they left a little of themselves behind to the night settling in on the university streets the ghosts of longing abroad in the dark. Years after Patricia's death, Ferguson would walk these streets and think that she was there somewhere close by in the dusk. Patricia had not waited at the courthouse on the day of Taylor's conviction, nor had he ever been alone in her company again. After her murder, stories had reached him of Patricia's men, of her reputed promiscuity. These men had never shown themselves, and he had never found them, but they would be forever her companions in the dark. In this faithless city, the story was all. On George Lance Curran, he's a terrifically interesting character. Uh, he's powerful in so many different ways. But it struck me as I was reading through the book, can the law be trusted? Because there is a distinct mood in this book and certainly how you present the key characters. There's so much shady behaviour associated with the law or how justice is seen to, to function or not. Well, 
I was brought up in a law family. My father was a solicitor, uh, a brilliant mercurial man who went off the rails, became, I suppose, what is known now as a rogue solicitor, but would have been a very correct person. And I think when he came up against the Northern system, he would have been a contemporary of Desmond Kern, uh, Patricia's brother, a strange uh, um, Protestant barrister who became a Catholic priest and served in South Africa. Um, he would have known him uh, at college. And I suppose what I'm interested in, I'm, I'm not going back to kind of reconstruct my father's life, how he fell, and he fell very far, but I'm kind of prowling the territory, I'm prowling the moral territory, how people, how men in particular, um, become corrupted. What is a point that you reach where you make a decision that you cannot go back on and how the ground disappears from under you? Do you think there was a lot of people in the North around that time who were very professionally and morally compromised in some ways? Well, I mean, the, the original love story is yeah. based on, on, on the murder of Patricia Kern in 1952, who was a character in this book. There are three books mm-hmm. all following the, the, the career of, of Lance Kern. Uh, the murder of Patricia, I suppose, coalesced all those factors. I mean, something I always go back to um, in the, the hot press in our old house in Kilkeel and County Down, there was a piece of paper, an old yellowed piece of newspaper lying in a drawer, and the headline on it was Judge's Daughter Slain, and it was original 1952 Belfast Telegraph. The case in, in itself is fascinating. A young airman, Ian Hay Gordon, was falsely convicted of the crime, um, found not guilty by reason of insanity, because otherwise it would have had to hang him, even though the people surrounding the case knew that he was innocent, or at least should not be convicted. The conviction was obtained by Chief Inspector John Capstick of, of Scotland Yard, saying that he would tell his mother he was a homosexual if uh, he didn't confess to murder. His own counsel was a, a, a grammar school man because uh, the public school uh, ethos of the law library wouldn't allow them to go up against one of their own who would be Patricia's father. If you look at the circumstances of the, of the actual murder, there are lies and omissions running all the way through the case, particularly from the family, from Patricia's father. Her mother was uh, sent to a, a, an asylum two weeks after her death and never emerged until her death in 1974. The whole thing is immensely theatrical, gothic, and corrupted. It almost uh, reads like Sophocles in ways. Yeah, I mean, you, you go back to uh, blood, primogenitor, um, all those kind of, if, if you like, sort of huge themes of, 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 of family and, 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 and death and revenge. It, 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 I mean, it's, it's all there. Uh, and the Kearns and system behaving in this kind of huge, uh, kind of theatrical manner. Doris, uh, Patricia's mother, who she had a very bad relationship with. Patricia was a willful, beautiful 19-year-old girl. Her body was found in the driveway to the house of Glen. Uh, she'd been stabbed 37 times. Doris had been brought up in Broadmoor uh, uh, Hospital for the Criminally Insane because her father was warden there. You know, you, all of a sudden you, you, you have images of, of sort of Dartmoor and kind of fog and, and, and madness and, and, and all these kind of things. And she was also there kind of strangely, which I, I built something up around, was at the same time as Thomas Cutbush was an inmate there and Cutbush was um, one of the chief suspects for being Jack the River. You must have felt you hit the jackpot when you found that through your research, did you? I think I hit the jackpot in a sense when I was reading through his admission file to Broadmoor and I put through a physical description mm-hmm. of him, uh, hair black, mm-hmm. height 5, 10, whatever. And then I said in a very unprofessional sort of departure from, from the, the, the very sort of um, objective description, eyes dark blue, very sharp. Yeah. And there was something about that phrase and it was that um, immediately brought the thing alive to me. Yeah, it certainly from a reader's perspective pushes your imagination in all sorts of directions. Doris is a very complex character. She's a very vulnerable character. She's a very emotional character. But you think memory can haunt people all through their lives, so much so that they can, they can lose control. 
Well, I mean, who knows? I mean, I, I would have thought, I mean, that there was one of the, the major suspicions around the crime was that, in mm-hmm. fact, Doris had, had, had murdered her own daughter mm-hmm. and had covered it up. And I thought, in a way of this case, in a way of dealing with a real case, mm-hmm. that things fall into your lap and, and, and mm-hmm. knowledge comes to you in, in increments after you've even written it, that I, I thought, you know, your mother could not possibly stab her daughter with extreme violence 37 times. And then I kind of discovered that a paranoid schizophrenic could. I mean, who did they imagine they are? Who did they imagine the person they're stabbing is? Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it is, it is possible, but... I think the whole tone of the book that I tried to get was that you could fall through layers of reality and layers of knowing this, mm-hmm. that it opened up the mystery mm-hmm. underneath the case. And I was after the, the mystery more than I was after a solution. And it's, it's that mystery and that unknowing which makes it all so gripping. Can I ask you, you mentioned to me earlier that Desmond, who was the brother of Patricia, the son of Lance and Doris Curran, died a number of weeks ago. There are families related to all the key protagonists in the book. Do you ever worry about that? Yes, I kind of struggled with it because I've used, very often, I've used real cases in, 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 to write novels. And I mean, the thing about it is it's not, I'm not trying to be provocative or create a subgenre. They, the way I work it is that these stories demand to be told in this way and, and there's no other way of telling them. There, there's a moral dimension to it and I can struggle with this for, for quite a while until I realised actually what if I transgress, if I cross the, the, whatever line there may be to say where you intrude into people's lives and you, you, you put words in their mouth and have them doing things they didn't may or may not have done, then that is it's not a, an artistic fault it's a, it's a, it's a sin mm. in actual mm. fact and it, that is my sin mm. for which I will answer to to whoever you answer to for, for your sins you know, I'm, not, I'm, not a, I'm not a priest you know, I don't have that kind of moral uh, authority or responsibility in, in, yeah. in that sense yeah. and they're all highly transgressive characters but I'm wondering about entonement because what happens? Well, I don't know. I mean, that, 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 mm. that, that's the problem. I mean, one of the things which has interested me in, in all of this and, and continues to interest me is how people become corrupted. Mm. And what is the step that you make that you cannot go back on? Mm. How does that happen? How does mm. the floor disappear, the moral floor disappear mm. right, right from under you? Mm. And in many cases, I mean, is, is there atonement? Is it atonement possible? I mean, I suppose Ferguson, who is um, Lance Kern's fixer, who has a transgressive relationship with the 19-year-old Patricia, um, he goes back in this book, which is, if you like, the, 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 the final book of the trilogy, but in fact it, it, it cuts from before the, the very start mm-hmm. to the end. And he goes back and his atonement, if you like, is to mm-hmm. actually try and find out what mm-hmm. happened to Patricia, who did actually kill her. But he's not a black and white character. He's a joy to read because there's so many possibilities with him. And in ways... He's quite likable, of all the characters. Well, on my, I suppose, and I followed my father's journey down, um, I met a lot of criminals, corrupt businessmen, corrupt lawyers, dodgy cops. Um, mm. And I mean, these people, they, you know, they have an allure um, and some of them are, are quite charismatic. Mm. And mm. I, I, I'm intrigued by those kind of, I suppose, kind of levels of corruption. And I'm, I'm about charisma. You know, you run into people who can be entirely without morals and but they can they can switch that on switch it off they can be quite sort of normal in company but then when they're being when they're at business then it becomes just a matter of business and entirely immoral so all those things i mean and all the, if you like the textures the moral textures around all those people that, that, that I'm, I'm drawn to that can i ask you how did you research the courtroom because i loved that and um found it very visually very
very stimulating, very atmospheric, the whole flirtation between Ferguson and Patricia. But I'm just wondering, how did you kind of piece all of that together? The, the trial was covered daily in the Irish News, the entire transcript is there. The, the two trials, in fact, there, yeah. were, there were two trials of, of, mm. of Taylor in, in particular mm. um, for the murder of a respectable young 19-year-old mm. um, Protestant lad mm. uh, charged with a, with a very brutal murder of a Catholic woman. And there was a kind of sense that, you know, it was like lynch law in, in mm. the kind of sense that there, there was a feeling that a young Protestant mm. was never going to be convicted mm. for the murder of a Catholic woman mm. at the time in, in 1949. In actual fact, the whole situation was much mm. more complex than that. But the, the atmosphere, you know, there are strange things that you kind of reach out for. Um, in the book preceding this mm. one, I had the trial of McLaddery, the last man to mm. be hanged in the island of Ireland, who was tried by Lance Kern mm. and convicted and, mm. and sentenced to death and hanged. I remember my father bringing uh, myself and my brother to a court case, which was, it became part of the kind of the Amal Clooney case, which was now sort of going on, the, the, the hooded men. But originally, it was the first man's release from internment by judicial process. And I used the kind of courtroom atmosphere, as I remembered, and reconstructed it from memory and from the textures and tones and yeah. smells and everything. I used that courtroom to create the courtroom in the McGladry trial. And I thought the courtroom was originally Armagh, but in actual fact, I was in the, the, the room that McGladry had been convicted in. It was actually down Patrick Courthouse that oh. it been in so does that throw you sometimes these things throw you um, yeah. Yeah, you know recently I was in um, again dealing with the McGladry trial mm. which is the previous book I was in um, Antrim town and I was doing a workshop in the library and a lady said to me you know my father was on the McGladry jury McGladry was um, verdict came in after 40 minutes after a very complex trial it was, it was something kind of uns- very unsettling about it. and I tried to pump her for information and the only thing she said to me was uh, it was countrywoman that we had a dairy farm and we had a lot of trouble getting people to cover work while my father was away. And then I raised in the car home. She was telling me something. I just wasn't listening. She was saying, my dad wasn't going to sit in a courtroom for a week in a jury room deliberating over this teddy boy from Newry. They were going to get rid of him and getting rid of him meant hanging him. Now, all the marriages in this book are fairly dirty. There's no great love. They're cold. Disastrous communication. And the wives are all, uh, while they're strong characters in some ways, they're very vulnerable. And I'm wondering, why did you have all the female characters so so compromised in so many different ways? I remember um, years ago when I filmed one of my books, Resurrection Man, and an angry sort of German um, film sales rep saying... Uh, all, all his women are victims, whores or mad women and uh, yeah. <laughs> I like to think it's a little bit more nuanced than that yeah. but I, mean, I, I suppose the kind of the, you see the men yeah. in these relationships and then you see the women and, and they're both equally damaged yeah. in, 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 their own, in their own way and Damage is possibly the best word because Ferguson's wife has backstories also she's quite damaged there's a lot of fraught relationships and tension it, it's, it presents a certain picture Well I'm not sure you know if, 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 if in a certain extent it was not a a, a, a real picture in the mm. sense that you know any constellation that mm. you, you you get in life, particularly in these mm. lives, is, is very hard one. Mm. And yeah. it, these relationships are not, you know, they're not entirely transgressive mm. in the sense that they, they they find a kind of small corner of themselves, mm. in particular with Ferguson and his wife, where they can support, console, find something in each other mm. that, that that is worth preserving. And it's it's only a nugget. Mm. That's what they have. Yeah. But when you were writing, what types of truths were you going at? I, I suppose you let the kind of the, mm. the, the story lead you t- towards mm. that way. So kind of, you can't really say you're kind of aiming for a truth, but you, yeah. you're you're allowing the kind of story to unfold yeah. and, and you're allowing the kind of the, the, the mystery to deepen, if mm. you like. I mean, and, and if in any way that's the truth, mm. you're not looking for, mm. for an actual... Mm. I mean, I kind of feel with the bluest night that uh, it doesn't solve the murder of Patricia yeah. Kern, which it still remains unsolved. Yeah. But it does resolve the story mm. in, in, in its own kind of quite strange and, and, and complex way. Yeah. 
What would you say to critics who say to you that maybe art and the novel is not the place to do that? Well, where is the place to do it? You know, I, um, I wrote a book called the, the Ultras, which was reviewed by Senator Morris Hayes mm. in, the, in the Independent. Uh, and he said uh, at the time that um, this would be art would be the only mm. way that any truth about this period mm. would, 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 would really be arrived at. And I thought at the time, mm. well, that's a cop-out because you're letting him off the hook. Mm. And of course, he knew what was happening. He knew how mm. people were covering their tracks, that records had been destroyed, mm. all the kind of stuff that was going on. Mm. And he was right. So, I mean, you know, art has a responsibility yeah. to itself. Yeah. I mean, I'm not trying to yeah. kind of say it could, could reach outside itself. Yeah. But um, my art led me that way. Mm. Um, you know, and, and the kind of an older generation of mm. Northern writers, in a way, kind of warned off mm. my generation mm. from doing it. But I mean, you don't, you bring that damage with yourself. Mm. And uh, uh, we were brought up with it. Mm. We lived through it. Um, it's material, it's air. Mm. And, 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 mm. and, and you use it, you, you've, it's not an option not to mm. use it. And so it's mm. dishonest not to use it, I think. Mm. Having said that, mm. I've kind of I've wandered out of that territory now. Mm. Whether I wander back into it again or not, I don't, I don't know. But. Now, Owen, I read Blues and Night in, in one sitting and I loved it. I loved the energy, the, the, the pace, the tension, just ferocious aspects in it. It was gripping. But I'm wondering, I read it as standalone. But I knew I knew what you were doing in your other books. But you think somebody can pick your book up in an airport or in a bookshop or in a coffee shop and read it on its own blues night? Or do you think that they need to follow through the blue trilogy in some way? No, each book is standalone. Okay. They were written as standalone really because I wrote the Blue Tango yeah. because of the yeah. Patricia Kern murder. Uh, then I realised that uh, Kern mm. had tried McGladdery, mm. had, 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 had sat on the bench mm. and had put the black mm. silk cap on to mm. condemn him to death. And you know how, how kind of circular these things are. Um, the QC who represented Ian Hay Gordon, mm. the the, the innocent man in the first case uh, was the appeal court judge who turned down McGladdery's um, appeal. Yeah. Then I started to wonder about uh, Kern's early career and then realised yeah. he was a QC who represented the, the, the accused in, in this famous uh, 1949 case as well. Now, can I ask you, mm. Judge Lance Kern moved to England in the early 1960s and he married Doris's sister in real life is that right again that's one of the kind of strange facts that kind of drift you away when, when, when you deal with these real life cases and, and I keep picking up material and odd little events and apparently he married Doris' sister after Doris' death she never left the, the, the mental hospital Jesus, do you think he really haunted her? I don't know. I mean, you you know, I mean, one of, actually, I think in, in Blue as a Night, Kern was a gambler. I mean, it was one of the things mm. that interests me was this kind of huge kind of character mm. flaw. He, he gambled at the, the tables mm. in Belfast and I, the man in London. Um, and when you looked at his hall, he kind of made his gamble in, in his life and he mm. ended up, um, his daughter dead, as he said himself, his daughter dead and his wife in a madhouse and his son a Romish priest. Yeah. And then you get this kind of strange circumstance where he marries his wife's sister. Yeah. I, I don't even know how to respond to that yeah. myself. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it just adds an, an, an eerie undertone he, to, the, to the whole thing. Will he be able to let him go, though? Because he's such a fascinating character to read, but also in real life. That I'm wondering, will he ever be able to put him to bed? He's fascinated readers for three of your books. But I'm wondering, will you ever be able to park him? Well, <laughs> I don't know if he's kind of parkable, but um, I, I started off haunting them and I kind in a sense that they, they now haunt me um, yeah. and little pieces of information have come to me about the family some of them which I, I, I don't really even think on the kind of on, on, the, on the kind of moral spectrum mm. that, I, that I should allow out um, but um, I don't lie awake at night haunted by it but mm. it, it, it haunts the writer's space mm. if you like So Owen oh, no, I might get you to finish off with a reading I think what you've chosen is a, an insight to the character of uh, Judge Lance Kern. Yes, this is where uh, Robert Taylor, the, the accused man, tells his uh, 
girlfriend that he'd seen Judge Kern at, at, at the race. Um, again, my father was a gambling man, so uh, there's, there's a resonance in, in, in this. During a prison visit, Taylor had told Lily he'd seen Kern at Dunmore Park at the dog racing one night. He said he'd seen him with the collar of his coat turned up, placing bets at the tote hatch, but Lily didn't think that was true. Mark my words, Taylor said. I can spot a gambling man a mile off. Taylor recognised another gambler in Lance Kern. All put to chance and all made forfeit. He recognised the demeanour, the hangdog mean. He saw what was unwholesome in the man. The betting slip in the hand, the face pinched with vice. Kempton Park, Haydock. The names coming in off the wireless. Races that you would never see, the horses labouring towards the line, the fog of their breath. The type of man he is, Taylor said, you couldn't see two flies running up a window pane without making a bet in his head as to which one would breast the tape. Lily got a start when she looked along the front row of the public gallery in the courthouse and saw a girl who was a dead spit of Kern, with the same mouth turned down at the corners. She told Taylor on a visit that evening what she had seen, and Taylor replied that he had seen her too, and that it was Kern's daughter. He said she looked like a saucy one. She'd eat the face clean off you if you give her half a chance. The girl was wearing a Methody school uniform where all the knobby bitches went. The Methody girls had a reputation. Them girls spend as much time on their back as they do on their hind legs, Taylor said. Taylor tried to say that one of the Methody girls had gone with him to Lady Dixon's park after dark and how she was dying for it. Lily said she didn't believe him, then wished she'd kept her big mouth shut. The rest of the visit was all spiteful remarks and comments about her appearance. And that was Northern Irish writer Owen McNamee. Blues and Night is published by Faber and Faber and retails for around ten euros in paperback. The Blue Tango and Orchard Blue are the other two novels in the trilogy, and the good news is they can all be read as a standalone book. Owen's other novels include The Last of Deeds, The Ultras, and Resurrection Man. People just ain't no good A thing that's well understood You can see it everywhere you look People just ain't no good We were married under cherry trees We made our vows When the blossoms come sailing down Through the streets and through the playground The sun would stream on the sheets Woken by Sunday newspapers and never read a single word. People, they ain't no good. People, they ain't no good. People, they ain't no came the seasons went when the 
it for talking books for another week i hope you enjoyed the show okay all that's left for me to do now is to say a big thank you to ronan burnock who helped out with this week's show and the lovely marianne kennedy on sound we've been talking books i'd like to end tonight's program with some astute words from the queen of crime agatha christie who wrote very few of us are what we seem good night Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108.